Welcome to Foolish Voices, a Company of Fools podcast. Company of Fools is a professional theater based in Sun Valley, Idaho, and is a proud part of the Sun Valley Museum of Art. More information on Company of Fools and the museum can be found online at svmoa.org. Welcome to Foolish Voices. I'm Scott Palmer, Producing Artistic Director of Company of Fools. And on this show, we talk to a wide range of theater artists, both here in Sun Valley and all across the world, about how the current global health crisis is impacting their work, about their creative lives, and about their hopes for the future of our art form. Please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at svmoa.org. In this episode, we are talking with lighting designer and theater administrator, Steve Kohler. For the past two years, Steve has served as the managing director of Swift Creek Mill Theater in Chesterfield, Virginia, a professional theater south of Richmond. Steve has also been managing director of Civic Theater of Greater Lafayette in Lafayette, Indiana, and Actors Guild of Lexington in Lexington, Kentucky. He has served on the boards of the Kentucky Theater Association, the Indiana Community Theater Association, and the Richmond Virginia Theater Alliance. Steve has also served as a panelist for the Indiana Arts Commission and the Virginia Arts Commission. As a lighting designer, Steve has worked extensively in the Richmond area and throughout the Midwest. And for Company of Fools, Steve has designed The Syringa Tree, It's a Wonderful Life, a radio play, The Woman in Black, Good People, Grey Gardens, and most recently worked with me on our first production under my leadership as Artistic Director of the Fools, Crimes of the Heart. Steve is married to musician Shelley Johnson and is a proud father of three. Uh, I miss you. Welcome to Foolish Voices. Thanks for joining us, Steve. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I miss you guys. Uh, it is my great pleasure. And let me tell you why I am so happy to have you on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Of the 57 or 60 or so podcasts I have done, 85% of them have been actors. And I really need to talk to a managing director. I need to talk to a theater <laughs> administrator. <laughs> Sounds great. I hope I have answers that... Uh will help all of us. Look, you and I both know actors are lovely and delightful and we love them, they but are. every once in a while you just have to hang out with a theater administrator, kind of. I, I get that, yeah. Are you are you and your family all safe and sound and fine in uh, Richmond? Yes, we are. Uh, uh, my wife and I have been working from home for the most part for the past two months. Our two teenage children have been going to school from their bedrooms and our oldest daughter's kind of sequestered herself in her apartment in Chicago. Wow. That that's great. Have have you have you been okay? I mean theater people spend a lot of time out of the house. So <laughs> being sort of stuck at home with our loved ones uh, can be a surprise and a shock to them and us. It has been well and my wife is a musician so there there have been weeks in our lives where we barely see each other let alone spend quality time with our kids. So I, I hate to think of of looking for silver linings too much in this kind of crisis, but that has been a great silver lining. I've not been able to spend this kind of time with my family uh, ever, yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, my husband, Brian, sort of, I think the first few weeks was like, oh, this is great. He's home. We can hang out and he can bring me toast and 
brunch right. and now he's like oh my god when is the theater open <laughs> <laughs> do you guys at least have separate places where you can work we do he has an entirely separate office which is like almost outside of the house it's sort of out the door and around the corner so it re he goes he i'm doing big air quotes he goes to work <laughs> at about 8 30 in the morning um uh -huh. and and then you know i tried desperately not to bug him by being like i'm bored what are you doing <laughs> don't hang out with me let's play playstation you know at four, four yeah. in the afternoon uh, but no he's handling it how how is the community of richmond how's the theater community doing my assumption is like everyone else on the planet everything shut down everything completely shut down mid-march um i think i heard you talk to audra right mm -hmm. after this all started and yeah several shows ended mid-weekend uh we had our show uh, i love you perfect now change was set to open three days after we shut down um so we've got a set on stage cues in the light board costumes in the dressing room waiting for a chance to do the show uh, but everyone's everyone's doing well for the most part we've we're a tight community um you know, the, the Richmond, Virginia Theater Alliance is representational of, oh, I forget the exact number, 12 or 13 uh, professional theaters in the community, and we communicate all the time, and it's a, a supportive, loving community for the most part. So it's it's interesting to me because one of the things about <clears throat> your career is that you have served um, on the boards of a lot of different theater association kind of groups, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Kentucky Theater Association, Indiana Community Theater, and now the Richmond Virginia Theater Alliance. Uh, we, as you can imagine, we here in Sun Valley do not have such <coughs> a large collection of theaters right. that we need to have an association or an alliance. Um, you know, there are only three of us, so we just text each other and kind of go, "How's it going?" Sure. What 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 is a what is a theater alliance or association like the one in Richmond? What are they doing right now? Is it convening? Is it conversations? Is it? I mean, we, what we is are <clears throat> a little bit of all of that? We we just had our monthly meeting yesterday. Uh, it was a Zoom meeting, and a lot of it right now is just checking in on everybody, seeing how everyone's doing. Uh, but also, it's a way to share information. Uh, I'm on the executive committee, and we're beginning to look at public responses, uh, letters to the editor, that type of communication, mm -hmm. um, and also forming a committee to help all the theaters reopen when that, uh, whenever that is able to happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Allergies are horrible this time of year. Yeah, I know. Um, so we're, we're, we're able to get together and talk mostly by phone and text and Zoom right now, but it's great to have this community to bounce ideas off of. Uh, and there's also a social aspect. Uh, I've just got an invitation for a pajama Zoom party, I think <laughs> next week. Uh, and we had a happy hour last week. And so a chance for people to gather as best we can. So can can I do you mind if I dive in a little bit to those kinds of uh, those kinds of projects? So the the letter writing campaign specifically, the op, mm -hmm. sort of op-ed letter to the editor campaign. This is this is a process on the part of the Theater Alliance to encourage arts organizations, actors, designers, etc., to start writing letters to the editor to encourage contributions or support. The the big focus right now is on on reaching out to our patrons and encouraging them to to donate to their favorite theaters, donate their tickets if they're unable to come or if one we are unable to do a show, uh, to encourage the the purchase of gift certificates and those types of things that kind of give us some cash flow now for 
for activity down the road. And also uh, part of it also to help try to push uh, legislative moves to help the arts. Um, as you know, the performing arts are gonna be hurting long after the rest of the country reopens. And so trying to find some way to help support those groups through legislation, through more, uh, uh, any type of act from from Congress that could send us some money. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's that's really great. I mean, I think so many people in this time, you know, are are kind of not necessarily focused on the ins and outs of what happens to performing arts organizations, right? Like it's just right. not top of mind for those of us who aren't in the industry. And so, doing some education around here are some ways you can help support the the theaters that you love the performing arts organizations that you love um you know we all talk to each other about it and we try right. and encourage our patrons to do it but as much uh, as much additional information as possible out to the public is super helpful um exactly how are you how are you finding all these zoom parties and zoom <clears throat> meetings are, is it driving you as crazy as it is me i i haven't done the zoom parties my my social anxiety kicks in to an extent where i don't feel comfortable with that. Uh, the Zoom meetings I'm getting used to, we do weekly staff meetings and it's great to be able to see faces at least. Uh, that being said, I'm pretty exhausted by the end of even an hour long meeting. I don't know why it's so much more exhausted than a regular meeting, but it is. And I, it's great to have that ability. I mean, I was just thinking, you know, looking at my kids, what would have happened when I was their age if something like this had happened back in the eighties. No communication, no computer technology, no ability to hold meetings, uh, really hard to continue working from home. So it's a blessing to have it, but yeah, it's a little exhausting. Yeah, I I, I sort of kind of <clears throat> was saying to someone the other day, uh, you know, I used to feel like I worked really hard, right? Like in the theater, right. get to the office at nine, leave the theater at 10, 30 or 11 o'clock at night, uh, you know, after a show, blah, blah, blah. But I, I am more exhausted working from home than I ever was working yeah. in a theater. And I think it's partly isolation, um, having to do all this stuff online and the mediated conversations and all that kind of stuff isn't just not as, it's not as electric uh, and, and fulfilling and as exciting as working collaboratively in person. With. Oh, exactly. We're, we're in an art field that depends on other people. Uh, not just the collaboration among the artists, but it depends on the audience all being there in the same room, telling and listening to these stories. That's that's what we thrive on. So to not have the ability to see other people is it in itself exhausting. It is exhausting. Um, I mean, so you, my assumption is that I, I think I think we've had this conversation before, but I, I but maybe not. I just assume anyone who works for Company of Fools. It, it, it was brought here originally because of their relationship with John Glenn or Denise or RL. Is that correct? Like that's how we got in touch with you is because you knew our founders from their time in Richmond. Very loosely. They, I came to Richmond after I think Denise and Rusty were already gone or they were gone soon after I got here. I worked with John on one show um, right before, I mean, I think it was months before he and RL did that long cross country drive uh, so I didn't know him well, but years later we became friends on Facebook and he reached out with a question about uh, the need for a new light board at the Liberty. And I took that opportunity to respond, hey, John, I, if you ever need lighting designers, not thinking anything would come of it. 
And he wrote back right away. And before I knew it, I was signed up to do the syringa tree. <laughs> so it was, it was not a, a tight, I, I think our relationship definitely grew exponentially over the years that I, I was able to come out there, but we did not know each other that well. Um, I, and in fact, the one show we worked on, your good man, Charlie Brown here in Richmond, uh, I was sound, I did sound for it. I didn't do the lighting design for that one. That's, that's, that's crazy. I mean, I, I'm so grateful to the founders, John and Anarl and Denise and everyone, uh, Rusty and all these lovely, lovely human beings who have deep roots oh. in Richmond. Um, you know, to be honest, most of my work was being, you know, done on the West Coast in Portland area. Um, and I had no idea there was such an enormous wealth of creativity and talent in the Richmond, Virginia theater community. So, um, you guys are all pretty amazing. Um, how how do you Steve? How do you divide your time between the artistic work of being a remarkably gifted lighting designer? Uh, Thank you. Is, your work is beautiful, um, as well as being the managing director of a theater. Like I can't. I, I, I just have a hard time kind of wrapping my head around how you <laughs> well, marry I, those two <clears throat> those two focal points. The the administrative side kind of was a secondary aspect of my career for a long time. I moved to Richmond as the master electrician of what was then Theater 4. It's now a, a part of Virginia Rep. And uh, the lighting design kind of become a big part of my workload here in Richmond. But as I got older, I got married, we had kids, that a little less attainable for me. So at the same time, my whole administrative career was beginning to take off as my day job at Theater 4, and I just kind of went down that road. So as I've gone, that balance has shifted where, where now my artistic expression is not something I'm able to do that often, which is one mm -hmm. of the things I, I love so much about Company of Fools is when I get to come out to Idaho, that's that's it. That's my entire focus is just being able to be an artist. I, I mean, I say that, but as you recall, I was writing grants at the coffee shop. I was going to say, I was going to say, yeah, don't so lie to not... me and my don't <laughs> lie to me and my listeners when we <laughs> when you were out here for Crimes of the Heart. I, I bumped into you multiple times in the morning at the coffee shop, yeah. and you were out there with your laptop going, "Oh my God, grant deadlines and." finance committee meetings and all kinds so, of stuff. I, maybe I can't separate as much as I want to think I can. But, <laughs> but but one thing I love about it, I used to tell this to John, that my favorite thing was I was able to come and do a show and not worry about how many people were going to come, not worry about the marketing of the show, not worry about how much anything was costing. Outside of my you know responsibilities as a designer to, to spend wisely, I didn't have to worry about all those other things. And that taking that off gave me the chance to feel like an artist again. When I design for a theater I work for, I, that, is, that is where it's impossible for me to marry those two. Mm. I have to keep them as separate as I can. Right. Well, that, that makes sense, sort of, yeah, because you're, you're constantly juggling not only your, your artistry and how the, you know, how the lights look on stage, but also, you know, are we going to be done on time? How are the ticket right. sales going? Right. All of that. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I hear you. I hear yeah. you. That is familiar to me for sure. I'm sure it does. Um, so why, what, how did you get started as a lighting designer? What was the, what was the thing that drew you to lighting design as a profession? I went to school at Indiana University. And originally I went in thinking I was going to be a carpenter or a set designer. That's just, that's 
my limited knowledge coming from high school, that's what I liked. Uh, but lighting, uh, introduction to lighting was a required course and I took it and just fell in love with it. I think, and, and as I've grown, I've, I've begun to feel this more and more that the lighting of a show, there's a, a poetry to it. Um, I've heard it, I've heard many people compare it to a painter where you're, you're painting with light. And I feel that, but I, I, I feel it much more of an affinity between lighting and music. The way that you can pace a show and feel how a show grows through the lighting is something that really appealed to me. Uh, so that it's just something I fell in love with. Um, and that's, that's what, yeah, I, I don't know how else to put it. That's what drew me to it was the, the poetry and music of lighting is what I loved. Hmm. So, um, so, I mean, I, I have to, I'm going to heap some praise on you uh, for your work on Crimes of the Heart because, you know, as you can imagine, it was my first show, new artistic director, new theater company, community I hadn't been to. And, um, you, you know, just sort of working with you and working, and this is true of most designers that I work with. I often find my most sort of fruitful artistic relationships are with the design team and with the production artists because uh, we are working together very, very closely to create the kind of broader mood, the tone, the feel, the flavor <clears throat> of an entire show um, mm -hmm. that really sort of frames the whole thing. And um, I mean, I, I to this day, I can remember posting on Facebook a picture of the original light lighting plot once the set was in, and I still get people going, oh my God, those lights are amazing. Oh my God, that, oh, wow. that's so gorgeous. It's layered. That's... And so when you think about your own work as a lighting designer, mm -hmm. how, how would you describe your process? Like, what do you, what do you do to become ready to go? How do you implement those things? What's your, what's your approach to the work of being a, a light, lighting artist? Well, I, I look, when I first read through a script, <clears throat> first couple times, you look at the, the, you know, the time of day, the geogra ge geography of the location, all that is important. But for me, what I really start to feel like I'm digging into it is the mood of the show and how I can help enhance uh, the mood and the pacing of a show is what I really start to dig into. Uh, so I remember for Crimes of the Heart, our early conversations, you were you were very clear you didn't want this super warm, sentimental kind of feel in the show. So I, I was it was great to kind of grab onto that sentiment and start to look at it in a way that I probably never would have with any other designer, I mean, with any other director. So it was great to have that kind of focus early on and from there, I do as much as I can to get the mechanics out of the way, get the plot up, make sure it's focused. And then I love to dig into, like I said, the pacing and the mood of the show. Yeah, those, I mean, I love those initial early conversations are so helpful for directors as yeah. well, right? Like, you know, if I say, oh, I don't want it to be sentimental. And you're like, really, are you sure? It's sort of getting me, and I'm like, okay, maybe not, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, I mean, um, I think we got some sentimental in there without being sappy. And, yeah, exactly. Sappy. No, yeah, I, which, no. which is, I think it found the perfect place because of that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, are there, <laughs> I, I am about to ask this question knowing that there is an answer to it. Um, what are, are there some unique and interesting challenges of working in lighting design at the Liberty Theater here in Haley, Idaho? <laughs> <laughs> there are a handful, especially Just when the couple. director says, 
big trees blocking half the lighting positions. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> we, we worked around it. We did. Um, it, it's, it's a, a lot of my favorite theaters have been found spaces. So although I'm, there are many challenges, I kind of embrace those. And I have found over the years as a designer, the more I'm challenged with lack of equipment or weird hanging positions like at the Liberty with most of the front mic coming from the far sides, although it's not an extremely wide theater, so that's not too bad. Uh, those challenges are, are what drives me. Um, you know, like I said, getting past those mechanics is important to me. So figuring out how we can get that front light feel early on then kind of takes that, that burdensome aspect of the challenges away as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember sort of having this conversation with the team here at first when I, when I first got here, I was like, oh my God, what, what are all those lighting positions doing there? Like, that doesn't <laughs> seem, that doesn't seem like a good uh, well, position and, and the, to light stuff from. That seems crazy. Like the one closest, uh, furthest out from the stage didn't exist until somewhat recently. And up until the syringetry, actually those ones furthest uh, right up against the proscenium, uh, which aren't incredibly useful, but those were put up for syringetry. So there used to be only half the front of house positions at, that there are now. Right. Yeah, it's wild. It's a, it's a, yeah. I, I love, I love that kind of stuff too. I, you know, my, my, I almost don't want a theater to make it too easy for me. I want to have to be challenged and have to be, exactly. you know, problem yeah. solve and all that kind of stuff, yeah. which is good because we're currently, as you know, in the midst of a major global pandemic, which is requiring us to be very creative in terms of problem solving. Yes. Um, when, Steve, when you think about the future coming months or longer, what, what are the things that keep sort of coming back to you, both as an artist, as a designer, but also as a managing director and administrator of theater, what are the things that are sort of, if not keeping you awake at night, um, kind of consuming your thinking around our industry and, and what we're gonna do? Well, the biggest thing that's keeping me up at night is how I can pay for, how I can make the finances work to have a third of my seats available in the house um, that I usually do. Uh, you know, when, when we look at, a good selling show here, selling 70% of our available seats. And now suddenly the best we can do is, you know, 40 seats out of 200 or 50, 60 seats, depending on how the parties break up. It, it gets a little daunting. Uh, so I'm not sure yet how we make that work, how we can jump from the push to sell out every theater, every house we can to making do with what we can which again, those challenges to artists are great, but as an administrator, it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there's that, but there's also the, the fears of will people come back? Can we make it safe enough for them? Can we make it feel safe enough for them, which is a separate conversation. And then will they come back anyway? All the polls that keep coming out are saying that we may have a long time before we have our audiences return. Yeah. So, so what are you thinking? I mean, I know you, you may not have an answer, but what, but are you, what kinds of things are you exploring in terms of those two very specific challenges? I mean, I think people may not understand that having to maintain social distancing in a theater, you know, the Liberty's 260 seats. And if we have to give everybody six feet of distance, that drops us down to 42 seats. 
Right. Well, one thing we we have done is we've looked at it more instead of making every seat socially socially distant from every other seat. We're looking at we we have groups, so we have a bunch of twos spread throughout the theater and fours because people coming from the same house can sit together. So that that's helped that a little bit, um, but we're we're more concerned about where people gather where our our bottlenecks are in the theater mm -hmm. so we're opening up several entrances that we don't usually use we're seating we're talking now this is all theoretical we're not going to be able to open until at the earliest august here in virginia uh with the way the governor's laid out our reopening the absolute earliest will be open is august <clears throat> so we've got time um, but we're looking at all the lines bathrooms bar uh entering the theater having people enter exit in a certain time frame, having our season ticket holders maybe able to come first, spreading out how long it takes to get people seated in the theater. Um, so there's a lot of that. Uh, what it, we're also looking at what it entails to maintain a sanitary space, how we can clean more, um, what it looks like to have staff in uh, masks throughout the day. Uh, we have a restaurant attached to our theater also so we've got a double concern there i was going to say not to make any not to make it more no, complicated yeah. <laughs> and that that we're down to i think if every seat if every if we get the right amount of parties of six and parties of two and parties of four we can fit 42 people in our dining room that we usually can seat a bit over 100. so again the financial impact of that is is something we're still we're still trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, but we're, we're looking at how we can eliminate lines in addition to safe seating. It's, we don't have a lobby. Um, not that the Liberty has a huge lobby, but we have no lobby. Uh, it's literally you go in the stair, you go in, you go upstairs and you're in the theater. So it's trying to figure out how we can make those congregation points not happen and how we can assure that there are no, 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 places where you're stuck in line behind five people right yeah i mean the the complexity of these things right like we're <clears throat> we're doing the same thing we're thinking about are they are, are there staggered seating times yeah do we do we invite our season ticket holders to come first and then entertain them for 10 minutes while everybody else shows up by giving them a free glass of wine but then the immediate question is, well, do they line up at the bar to do that? Or do we bring it to them? How to right. write like all of that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it is, it, it is so complicated. Uh, yep. You know, I, I, I have gotten stressed out and a little bit frustrated with folks who are like, well, I don't understand what the big deal is. I mean, if you just let, let a social distance seat, what's the problem? I'm like, well, are you going to line up within six feet of each other to pick your tickets up at will call or are you going to print them out ahead of time are we going to require right. you to print them out ahead of time yep. uh what do we do about programs do we hand them to you do we not hand them to you do we even print them um right like just the the level of complexity of trying to get even 42 people into yeah. a theater none of our spaces steve are known for having huge amounts of restrooms right like theaters right. don't right. generally spend a lot of valuable uh, yeah. real estate on bathrooms. So how do we get those 42 people to pee during an intermission, right? Like it's exactly. just, it's so complicated. It is. And and we've spent hours of staff meetings and side meetings with my house manager and our food and beverage manager and many more to come. 
uh, I think you posted a document the other day on Facebook about it was like a 30 page document from some event safety group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, I sent that to my house manager and food and beverage. And I said, all right, here's a starting point. Let's, let's tear out everything we've done and start over with this as a guide. And it, it's making things even harder and more complicated because yeah. it's bringing up things we haven't thought of yet. You know, this, the one thing that I just about lost my mind that I couldn't, I couldn't even believe I didn't think about it uh -huh. was, was recording on a log every time your staff cleans a specific public area yeah. that, that, that this document encourages theaters and performing arts venues to have a regular schedule of cleaning, deep cleaning with a process and a procedure, right? Like the wipe down yep. and the spray. But then yep. you have a clipboard, like you sort of see at rest areas or in, or in you know, uh, bathrooms at, at sports arenas. You know, this restroom was cleaned on this date. Um, yeah. But not only do, is it good to just, of course, obviously clean the public areas, but having that log and having it visible to the public gives gives the public a feeling, gives your patrons a feeling that you're doing your job and keeping it clean. But right. it also is useful in case someone sues you because yeah. they may have been infected by the virus while in your venue. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even think of it. Yeah, I, I've, I've had long conversations with our insurance agents as to what what is our liability. And, and not just from the audience perspective, but from our actors as well. And I know equity is working on on figuring out how to keep our, our actors safe. But what happens if an actor gets sick and they can trace it back? What happens if an audience member gets sick? We have a, a big student matinee uh, part of our programming. We have about 17,000 kids come through our theater every year. That's completely sidelined right now. Um, if we have any youth shows where we've been made it very clear, you can't mix schools, you can't mix classes necessarily even. So it becomes a, an economic, a financial disaster to try to do it the way we've done it before. And and so it's it, every time we think we have something, okay, this is what we'll do, some other terrible scenario pops in head, like getting sued because someone got sick at the theater. Yeah, I I just, <clears throat> I was like, in my head, I was like, well, duh, of course, we're going to clean everything, right? And then I was right. like, oh, yeah, we probably should keep a record of that. Oh, yeah, and we probably should make, let people see that we're keeping a record right. of that. And we should always make sure that it's signed and dated and timed and all of that in case we end up in court, which is just yeah. nuts. I mean, just which, feels... I mean, the, the odds of someone being able to trace back to I got sick at the Liberty with a two-week incubation period the odds of them knowing they got sick at the liberty are pretty out there right but the the pr aspect of that then is something that's kept me up at night what if somebody does sue how do we deal with the public relations aspect right or yeah. even even if it's not even if it's not being sued you know it could be something as simple as you know there's a spike in in infection rates in september three of the people who are identified as having contracted the illness have attended shows at X theater. Right. I mean, we're screwed, right? Like yeah. everyone's like, meh, not going to the theater again. <laughs> right. Like there's no, yeah. yeah I mean, it yeah. just, it's and, and a lot of that is 
is coming back then to that need to not only make the theaters clean and safe, but to convince everyone that it's clean and safe. Right. It's it, like having a list, having the staff in masks, um, making sure they can see cleaning product. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't solve everything. Um, what, you know, I, I was just a, sort of in a Twitter discussion with some friends of mine from the San Francisco Bay Area. And, you know, there's this general kind of, it's not general, there's a feeling on the part of some folks, look, it's just a matter of time. Uh, once this all gets figured out, theater's going to return bigger and better and stronger than ever. And I go, great, that's awesome. But we are in a moment of sort of forced stillness right now as, as people in our industry. And I really, really, really want us to take the time that we have to consider whether or not we want theater to come back in the same way or if yeah. there are better ways for us to do this. Have you right. been sort of struck by that as an opportunity as well? I have, I don't have any answers though. And if you come up with any, please share. Uh, but I, I do think we can do it better uh, from a business side and an artistic side. I'm sure there are areas we can improve. I just don't know what those are. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the things that keep me awake at night are things like the, you know, overthrowing the economic structure of nonprofit theater in the United States, right? Right, right? like yeah. throw it out, figure out a different way to do it. Um, but then again, then I just get tired and go back to sleep. Uh, yeah. and, and trying to figure out, you know, one of the things that I loved, a uh, conversation I had with a, a friend of mine from American Repertory Theater, um, they were in the process of starting rehearsals for a show that eventually got canceled but they did their first almost two weeks of rehearsals online. They, you know, uh -huh. they were bringing in artists from all over the country and they just basically did Zoom meetings for the first week and a half. They did their first read, they did designer presentations, they did dialect work, they did table work, they did one-on-one -on -one conversations between artists and director, focusing on character development. They even did, you know, some basic online, like they, they did their own measurements. The costume department had them doing measurements and teaching them how to do it while they were watching on Zoom. And I was like, oh my God, that would be so great if we could do that because it yeah. would save us money on travel sure. and housing, yeah. um, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and I just, I really just hope that we take an opportunity to kind of, I, I would love for us to have a little notebook, all of us to have a little notebook going, actually, this is a better way of doing this. Now that we're forced to sort of rethink it, this is a better way of doing it. Um, just so we can kind of keep that in mind when we come out of this, we don't have to go back to doing it the same way. Right. What are your hopes for the future of for American theater, Steve Kohler? What, what do you hope will happen? Oh, I don't know, other than the obvious that I hope we come out of this soon and can get back into the theaters. Uh, but I, I would hope that when we do come out of this, we're able to, to focus more on making this a, a safer, more viable long-term career option. Um, I've heard a few of you, your, your guests uh, were worried about their equity weeks, mm -hmm. their contract weeks for their health care. Um, I know here in Richmond, there aren't a lot of equity actors, but so many actors, artists, uh, musicians just lost everything overnight, um, you know, entire months of 
of revenue just gone. And I would love for us to find a way, and I don't know what that is, but to find a way to cushion that blow, to make it less of a, we need to do the shows to pay the artists, we need to do, to, to make it less of a, a financial burden on the artists to make this all happen the way we want it to. Uh, there's There's been a lot of talk, and I know here in Richmond, especially, we most of our actors have day jobs. You know, not the waiting table type day jobs, but careers, because that's the only way they can afford to do the acting. But that also forces all the rehearsals to be from, you know, six to 10 every night, which makes family life hard, which is why I stopped doing so many lighting designs, because every rehearsal was at night. <clears throat> if, if we could find a way to make the life of the theater person more family friendly. And, and I don't know how we do all this, but like I said, I've loved having my time with my family. And I, as much as I want to get back to doing what we do, I don't want to give this aspect up. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think those are the things I put in my notebook, right? <laughs> I go, hey, yeah. I don't know how to fix this, but here's something to remember, yeah. right? Like, um, <clears throat> you know, you know, uh, you know, a number of the artists that we bring into the Valley from all across the mm -hmm. country. Um, you know, they are often here for six to eight weeks. Many of them have families who they yeah. leave behind in Richmond or California or wherever, right? Um, right. How do we, how, how do we stop with the baseline assumption as producers that that's just okay? They're going to do it. They're going to sacrifice that time and that connection with their family in order to travel to central Idaho and do a show for six weeks, right? Um, right. Is there a more humane way for us to do that? Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, I try as hard as I can to keep those things at, at the forefront of my mind mm -hmm. while the team and I here are trying to figure out, great, okay, so we're going, you know, we're going to try and do a show in September. Um, if we don't do a, a show in September, if we're un unable to do that, what can we do to keep people on staff? What can we do to keep people right. engaged artistically? All of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's 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 complicated. Will you will will you promise me that when you come up with answers to these questions that you will share them with me? I most certainly will. I don't want you to be selfish. I want you. To, I won't I be. <laughs> can can I get the same promise from you? Absolutely. Yes. Wonderful. I, I will as then. soon as I have answers to any <laughs> of the questions in my little notebook, I will send right. them to you. Good Lord, help us all. Um, they, they've got to be out there. They've got to be out I, there. You know, we, we worry a lot, and we worry a lot about organizations, which in our positions, that's what we have to do. That's our, our job. Theater is going to be fine. Theater has survived much worse than this. What, what I don't know is what our organizations that support that art will look like in the next year or two. Right. So that's, I, I'm not, you know, I, I, theater's been dying for what, 2000 years? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <clears throat> so the, the theater as an art form will be fine. People desire to hear and tell stories to each other. So our, our artistry is not going anywhere. It's how we support that and make it a, a fiscally viable lifestyle for the people who make it happen. Right. Those are the answers we need. Yes. Well, and this pause may give us a chance to find those answers. Uh, that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm yeah, hoping. Same. And I'm, I'm super glad that I have your promise to share with me uh, recorded on tape for all eternity. <laughs> so that when I find out that you figured it out and you're not sharing with me, 
I'll be real grumpy. Um, I will definitely let you know because I want to be able to come back out to Idaho. Uh, yes, of course, and we want you to come back too. Um, my name is Scott Palmer. I'm producing artistic director of Company of Fools, and you've been listening to Foolish Voices. If you have enjoyed my conversation with the delightful Steve Kohler, please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at our parent organization, that is the Sun Valley Museum of Art, at their website at svmoa.org. I will also put a link to Steve's home theater, Swift Creek Mill Theater in Chesterfield, Virginia, so that if you were inspired to help and support out his theater company, you can make a donation to them as well. Um, Steve is a lighting designer and a administrator. He has done a ton of stuff, mostly in Richmond, Virginia, but he has also graced the Liberty stage with his lighting design for Company of Fools in such productions as It's a Wonderful Life, a radio play, The Woman in Black, and most recently, lighting design for my first show with the Fools, Crimes of the Heart. Steve, thank you so much for joining us, and will you please stay safe and keep healthy? Yes, and same to you. It's been great talking to you. Really, really good to talk to you. I can't wait to work with you again. Take care, same. and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, bye. Bye.